The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're up to chapter 8 in Zook's book, so we're making really good progress. We only have four or five more lessons to go. And our uh, lesson for this week is types and symbols. I'm curious, how many of you have come from a background where you saw a lot of types in Scripture? Anybody? Or do you even know what I'm talking about when we say types? Okay, hopefully that will become more clear as we work through. Um, Zook defines a theological type as an Old Testament person, event, or thing having historical reality. That is, it's not made up. It's not a, a vision of something that's not historical. And designed by God to prefigure or foreshadow in a preparatory way a real person, event, or thing so designated in the New Testament and that corresponds to and fulfills or heightens the type. So the premise is that God has so designed history that there are certain events or people or things earlier in his plan that foreshadow things that happen later in his plan. That's ultimately what the type is. Now, there's a little bit of confusion because the word tupas that is used in the New Testament can also mean something other than that definition that we just laid out. It's type similar to the way that we use it as a pattern or a model. Uh, you can have a, a, a pattern of a tabernacle that can then be constructed. And it's not a theological type when it's used that way. The Greek word appears about 15 times in the New Testament. And most of the time, it's not talking about a theological type, like what we've just defined. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about kind of the spectrum on which people have landed. One would see virtually no types in the New Testament. I would be more towards that end, and I'll explain why. The other would be see, see types just about everywhere there is in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, they're pressed in some way to make it uh, correspond to Christ or to find Christ in a particular passage. You remember the example in Zook? where he said that uh, the two hinges on the door of Solomon's temple represented the two natures of Christ. Well, that's just outlandish. There's no basis for doing that. And yet, as we've talked about in the early church, uh, early church fathers, there was a lot of allegorization, and that's the kind of thing that passed for finding spiritual meaning in a text. So that the extremes of typology is what I just mentioned. Types all over the Old Testament that being an example that I just gave. And on the other end would be no types at all. I think most people fall in the middle somewhere. Um, Zook himself lists, if you read the chapter, 17 instances of what he believes to be legitimate types. Now, a lot of those are either the feast of Israel laid out in the Old Testament as a type or prefiguring of something that happens in the New Testament, or the sacrifices. Uh, and the different sacrificial offerings as laid out in Leviticus. I wouldn't see those as types. Um, I think there are connections between them, but I would see those feasts, for example, as being continued in the Millennial Kingdom. So they're not just foreshadowing something that came about in the New Testament and been done away with. And that brings up another point, is that covenantal theology typically sees a lot more types than dispensational theology does. 
they see a lot of shadows in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the New Testament. And so the shadow kind of gets well, seen as a shadow and not as important anymore. Covenantal theology would say that New Testament revelation trumps Old Testament revelation and that Old Testament revelation was really just shadows and foreshadowing of things that would find their ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. To me, that doesn't, it does disjustice or injustice, I should say, to the message of the Old Testament itself on its own terms. All right, so <clears throat> I take a little bit of issue with Zook at a certain point, but I think a lot of what he says about types is good. We're going to follow through, and I'll explain where I take some issue with him. First, obviously, there has to be correspondence. That's the common thing. Even when type is used as a pattern or a model, there's correspondence between that pattern or model and then whatever it's being, whatever the anti-type is. Uh, so there has to be that, and it shouldn't be forced, like the two inches of the temple door. That's a forced correspondence that's not truly there. Secondly, there has to be a historical reality. That is, the Old Testament type is real not imagined or allegorical. Thirdly, there has to be prefiguring. Zook, and this is where I take a little bit of issue with it. Zook says, on the one hand, that there must be some predictive or foreshadowing element. And then he turns around and says, but that might not have necessarily been recognized by the original audience. Well, how could it be predictive or foreshadowing and they not recognize it? To me, that doesn't make sense. And we're going to look at a quote from Walton. I sent out an article by John Walton that deals with this same subject. And I think what he says is right. And I'm going to wait till we get there to tell you what that is. But the prefiguring, uh, to me, even with the feast, the examples that he gives, I don't think that the original audience would have seen those as foreshadowing something else that was coming down the road in the New Testament. Fourthly, between those that do have a genuine correspondence, there has to be a heightening in the New Testament, the anti-type, the corresponding element or person to the type. There's a heightened sense in some way. Some people would see David, for example, as a type of Christ. And obviously, as significant as David's ministry was in the Old Testament, Christ would be heightened and more significant. There has to be divine design. Types are not just observed similarities, and Zook makes a real distinction between similarities between two different events and types. They have to be resemblances planned by God. Such types demonstrate the unity of the Bible as a whole. So I agree with that. I believe that uh, God has so designed history that he has put things earlier in his plan that have some correspondence or foreshadowing of something later in his plan. Well, one way that I've heard it put that I think does a really good job is that prophecy unites the plan of God looking forward. Imagine you're driving down the road in a car and you're looking forward down the road. Prophecy unites the plan of God as you look down the road. Typology unites the plan of God as you look in the rearview mirror. You can see back and see things that happened earlier in the plan that correspond with things that happen later. Finally, there has to be New Testament designation. This provides a necessary control for legitimate types. Now, not everybody would agree that you have to have some New Testament designation for something to be a type. Again, the, the door hinges 
example doesn't have a New Testament designation that says that that's what those were. But I think you have to have that. I think you have to have the control that a type has to be identified by a New Testament writer. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he has to use the word type in that identification, but there has to be some way that he's corresponding or making the connection between the Old Testament event of person and his own argument or words. Let me give you another example of what I think is a genuine type, and I think it is largely because the New Testament writer says that it is. This is in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21, and Peter's talking about the days of Noah and the flood. He says, who once were disobedient, that, that spirit's now in prison is who he's referring to, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, and that's, that's a tough, uh, trans, tough passage to translate there, but I think that's not a bad translation. Uh, the word antitupos is used there in the Greek, so he's actually saying the antitype of that flood event, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in that case, what is the type? Okay, so just the flood would be the type. He points back to that event. He, and what's the, car, well, what's the anti-type? Baptism, water baptism in this case. What's the correspondence? Delivery, deliverance. In a sense, salvation, right? The means of salvation through the flood was the ark passing, uh, and Noah and his family and the animals passing safely through the waters of destruction. He, in this case, says that our passing through the water delivers us. Now, it's a, those waters aren't waters of destruction, but they are, uh, there is a correspondence between what happened with the flood and what happens at water baptism. All right, go ahead. Yes. That's right. And really, I think he's talking about the transaction that takes place there at water baptism. He's already, the person's already been. Yes. It is a testimony to the fact that that person has already expressed faith in, in the finished work of Christ. And it's not, as he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It, the salvation. Transaction doesn't take place at water baptism, like some people believe, but it's a picture, it's a public profession and identification with the church of the fact that God has saved that person. It's also, I would argue, a commitment on that person's part to live for Christ. <clears throat> okay, so this is the quote from the article that I was talking about by John Walton. I think it's a really good article. Uh, we've talked some about We've actually talked some about typology already as we looked at the quotes in Matthew and the, the introductory formula of thus the word of the Lord was fulfilled, continue the statement. But here's what Walton says, and this is where <clears throat> I think he, he corrects Zook in a sense. He's not doing that directly, but I think he makes it more clear. Typology is the identification of a relationship of correspondence between New and Old Testament events 
or people based on a conviction that there is a pattern being worked out in the plan of God, and that is that God has designed this pattern beforehand. Since this correlation is not identifiable until both type and anti-type exist, typology is always a function of hindsight. One thing is never identified as a type of something to come. In other words, the people in the Old Testament time, when they saw whatever the type was, just as when Noah saw the flood, I don't think he said, ah, that's water baptism in the future after Christ comes. There's no way to see that in the text of Scripture itself. So the type always comes during the New Testament time when the antitype is identified and then look back and seeing the correspondence. Only after the letter has come can the correspondence be proclaimed. As a result, one will never find confirmation of the typological value of the type in its initial context in the Old Testament. So that prompts the question, if we can't see it until the antitype is identified, on what basis do the New Testament writers identify types from the Old Testament? Inspiration. Inspiration. Did you read the article or did you just know that? Well, I knew it, but I read it. Okay. So that's the point that is good. That's the point that Walton is making. He's making it uh, with regard to types and symbols on the one hand, but but larger than that too. You either need sound hermeneutical principles to make your case, to support your interpretation, or you need inspiration. You don't have to have sound hermeneutical principles if you have inspiration. That might sound like an odd way to say it, but why do we believe that there is correspondence between what Matthew says as a fulfillment and what seems to us is something different from what the Old Testament actually says. Let me give you an example. And we looked at this one before, right? When Christ comes out of Egypt with his family as a baby, Matthew says, thus the word of the Lord is fulfilled, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's from Hosea chapter 11. You go back and read Hosea chapter 11, is that a prediction of Christ coming out of Egypt? No, not at all. What is it? It's Israel's coming out of Egypt. It's not even forward-looking. By the time Hosea writes, that has already happened. He's looking backward. But Matthew makes a connection, and we believe it, right? Why do we believe it? Because we believe it's Scripture. We believe that Matthew is writing under inspiration and that the connection he makes are through revelation given to him by God. So that's a big part of Walton's article is if you have inspiration, you don't need hermeneutics because you've got God himself telling you what something means. Now, the rub there is that sometimes people say, well, if the New Testament writers did that, we should be able to do it too. And Walton, I think rightly so, is arguing against that. We're not under inspiration. We don't get divine revelation from God the way the New Testament writers did. And we have to use sound hermeneutical principles both when we're dealing with whatever the New Testament text is and whatever the Old Testament text is. Kathleen. So one way we can know that's a type or anti-type is sound hermeneutics. We know that Jesus is their redeemer. He's the redeemer of Israel. He's their bre- You've got to be the brethren to be the redeemer. So in correlating him, my son, and my son, Israel's called my son, 
there's like and Matthew's trying to show this is your Messiah. Yeah, I don't think that that's what he's doing there, though. No, I, I, but we can, someone that wants to turn that into, um, what do you call allegorizing it? We can hang on to reality by just saying this is, he's the redeemer. That's the, he's the, the, he's the antitype. Because scripture says so, but he's their redeemer. I mean, yeah, I just, family to be the redeemer. That's true. All that's true. I'm not sure that that's the point that Matthew's making when he yeah. makes that uh, statement about it fulfilling. I think he's just seeing, okay, in, the, in a typological way, when God called Israel his son out of Egypt, so today, and in, in his day that is, Christ is coming out of Egypt. And he's just seeing the correspondence of earlier events to later events. And he does that, as we've looked at several times in Life of Christ, he does that a lot. He takes an event that's completely separate in the Old Testament, and he makes a connection with another event that he's writing about during Christ's day. And I think it's important to recognize that he's not seeing those Old Testament passages as predicting what was going to happen in the future, but he is seeing the fact that God designed a correspondence between those two and he's making that connection and that's the only way we would know that connection like there's one point of connection I think there's always one main point I think the danger is trying to press more than there is for sure So that's a good point. That's a good question. What example are you thinking about in the Old Testament that would support that? Well, well some, of the, some of the Psalms of David, I was thinking. I mean, I don't know. I didn't have anything particular in mind. So one that I thought about when you said that was uh, Ezekiel talking about David will come and reign. So to me, there's a question there as to what, how they would have understood that. Would they have understood that as a greater David? We obviously do because we have the New Testament revelation. Would they have understood literal David at that point? I think it's an open question. As far as the Psalms and a greater David coming, again, I think <clears throat> I think all the Psalms, and people disagree with this, all the Psalms that David is writing about his own experience is really about his own experience. And obviously Christ made connections with his experience to David's experience. So I think you could see a type there, in a sense, because Christ himself, you know, quoted David at certain times, particularly as he was going to the cross. You don't think that at that time they knew that, it, that those things were speaking of something larger than King David? So the way that I would understand what they knew was they were continually looking for a Messiah that would fulfill the ultimate ideal. And did they know that there were going to be a, a long series of kings before the actual Son of God came to do that? I don't think they did. I think that's a matter of progressive revelation. But I do think that each time a new uh, Messiah came to the throne, a new king came to the throne in the line of David, they were hoping that he would be the one that would restore them as a nation, that would keep the law, that would fulfill all those things. And as you continue to, to get new kings, it's obvious that none of them do. And then it becomes clear that, well, at least at some point it becomes clear that, that only Christ is going to do that. And when he comes and does all that he does in his public ministry, 
uh, I think it becomes clear at that point that he's the one. This goes again to the importance of reading the Old Testament as a progressive revelation and, and trying to, at least to be careful not to read further revelation back into old. Now, it's not always a bad thing for us to do today because we have it all, but you, I still say you have to try to put yourself in the shoes of the original hearers first to understand what their expectation was, what, they, what the meaning of the scripture was to them. And again, I would say Isaiah 7.14 is like that. You know, uh, uphold the virgin, she'll be with child, and he sh give, she'll give birth to the son, and he would call him Emmanuel. Well, in the context of that Old Testament passage, it's something that has to happen within that generation for it to be the sign that he talks about it being. But when Matthew cites it, that event is in the rearview mirror, and in a greater way, Christ has come, and in a greater way, God is with us, uh, with that generation in particular, and continues to be with believers in a greater way than the child that was born in Ahaz's day. So I, <clears throat> to me, the, the ones that Matthew cites in his gospel are legitimate types, quote unquote, typological interpretations of an Old Testament passage, and those are the ones that are most interesting to me. I do think there are other ones, but I wouldn't see near as many as a lot of people do because a lot of people not only like the two hinges on the temple door, but for example, another one would say would be like the scarlet thread that, hang, that Rahab hung in her place on the city wall so that the invading people would know that that was her place. People will say that scarlet thread is a picture of Christ's sacrifice for his people. It's a picture of the blood of Christ shed at the cross. Well, on what basis? And this is what I like about Walton's article. If somebody says that to me, I say to them, why should I believe that? Can you show me that from the Old Testament text? Is there a New Testament identification that makes that connection clear? Uh, and I, I, would, I would see this lesson even as much as anything a guard against seeing too many types. Uh, is that error when, they, when people do that? I would say it is. I mean, you can argue about how severe it is. Yeah, and to me, what it does, especially if you're seeing the whole Old Testament as just shadows and all the ultimate fulfillment is the New Testament, it's missing, I mean, two-thirds of our Bible is in the Old Testament. It's missing the message of the Old Testament. Now, certainly there are connections, but you need to understand that Old Testament in its own context first. And just seeing it, some people would argue that Matthew is actually telling us what that text meant in the Old Testament. And I don't see it that way. I, I just, that's right. Do covenantal people do that more, do you think? Yes. I just think that's their hermeneutic. That's their system. That's what they're convinced is right. There's, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to diss them too badly, although I'm probably dissing <laughs> them some. They see the God inspiring the New Testament writers to give us the true meaning, quote unquote, of the Old Testament passage. And I don't think that's what's going on. Yeah, and the meaning didn't change, right? Whatever it meant, it meant the same thing back those back there to those Old Testament believers as it means today. Do you think there's a, part of the problem is a failure to distinguish a just as statement and a typological statement? So just as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, that was not necessarily typology, but it was something that, hey, that was a, 
There's a picture of a yes. light thing. Yes. But that's not necessarily typology. So, and that's what Zook says. He makes the distinction between an illustration like that and a type. Now, I, I don't really have a problem with calling that a type. I mean, there is a, an identified New Testament correspondence, and there is a similarity or resemblance. Uh, I don't know what else you would need for that to be a type. So I, I don't completely agree with his distinction between illustration and type. I understand what he's saying. I don't think there was a predictive element when they lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, but Christ himself identifies, I, I would argue largely in the same way that Peter does with the flood, a correspondence between that being a means of salvation when they look to the bronze serpent, different kind of salvation to be sure, and his being lifted up in the wilderness. Both had to be looking in faith, that's true. Okay, good. So guidelines for interpreting types, again, these are from Zook in a little bit different order than he gives them, but note the direct assertions in the New Testament that verify the typological correspondence. Again, it doesn't have to use the word type, but there has to be some identification by a New Testament writer or speaker to make the connection. Determine the meaning of the type in its original context. Go back to that Old Testament context. Soak yourself in it. Forget about what the New Testament says about it for the time being and figure out what's being said. And then go to the New Testament and see what the points of correspondence or resemblance are between the type and the antitype. Don't press those beyond what they can bear. All right. Any questions about types before we move on from that? Again, I think it's important not to overdo types. Um, I think it's important to recognize those that are legit legitimately there, but I think the New Testament will identify those. Frank, would you say there are more types that exist that just aren't identified, and so there's a danger in trying to identify them? But would, you wouldn't say that every type that exists are the ones that are identified and there are no others? So I know you and I have had this discussion. I'll let you expound on that a little more, because why, why would I do that? Why would I say that there are more there than what we know, or there are than what are identified in the New Testament. It just feels like the, it's not comprehensive. You know, there are many more, more things that could be written, and it's dangerous ground. But it doesn't mean that that's all God has corresponded necessarily. It keeps you. It's a really great safeguard because it keeps you against hinges. So that that's where my thing but, is. But it, but it, I, do, I wouldn't want to go too far and say that. Let's say that it's the new heavens, the new earth, and we're sitting down next to, uh, I don't know if this is blasphemous to say this, but we're sitting with, talking to God that he's not going to say, hey, here are other ways that I cast a shadow in the Old Testament that just weren't. But it, uh, it wouldn't do us any good at that point, right? Because yeah, we're already there. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, to me, that's kind of like posing a hypothetical. I don't know that I could disprove it, but I don't know what, if we don't understand it now as a correspondence, how does that help? And and how do we understand it as a correspondence now unless the New Testament identifies it as such? I guess if I went further out on the limb and tried to keep one hand back so I don't fall, <laughs> I would say, you know, there there could be things that we see as patterns that aren't identified that we, we better not stand up and say, that saith the Lord. True. But at the same time, would that be helpful to us to say, hey, this, you know, again, there's a danger because we go, we'll go and identify things that aren't, but... Is there, are there things that, in your mind, 
are identifiable, it's just a danger to go there. I, I don't know. I don't. I just don't think about it that way. I think about it more as the control and as of seeing the legitimate types that are so identified. And again, <clears throat> I don't. I don't have a big problem with calling them illustrations like the one that David gave us, rather than types. But at least seeing that there's a correspondence that's made by a New Testament writer or character. Um, I think there definitely could be more. I think that's a possibility, but I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't speculate on what they are. You're still learning, and there's still. <clears throat> I think because the New Testament writer identifies it as such, you're still seeing that there is a divine design to the plan of God. And, and again, that's a big part of what typology does, is that God has so arranged history, especially the history of Israel that he's put things earlier in history that have a correspondence with something that comes later. Okay, let's move on to symbols. Zook says that a symbol is some object, either real or imagined, or action, which is assigned a meaning for the purpose of depicting rather than stating the qualities of something else. That's a lot, but he's basically saying, you know how symbols work today, right? We have certain symbols in our own culture and society that stand for something, and rather than writing it out, it's just the symbol. And we look at it and we understand that it stands for something else. Symbol is distinguished, in Zook's mind at least, from a type, in that a type represents something to come, but a symbol doesn't necessarily have to do that. What, what are some examples of symbols in the Bible? The rainbow. Okay. And what does the rainbow communicate to us? That God will never destroy the earth by water again. Exactly. And, and Scripture tells us about that symbol. It tells us what the symbol means. So rather than having that written out across the sky, we have something instead that communicates that God did judge the world by flood once in history, and then he promises never to do it again. Okay, the cross. What is the cross a symbol of? That's more of a symbol for us uh, in our time today, right? But it's, <clears throat> what is it a symbol of? Exactly. That Christ suffered death on a cross to pay the price of our sins. What are some other examples of symbols in the Bible? Okay. Can you give me some examples? There are. Okay, so <laughs> that one's in Isaiah, uh, and even those, the children's, the children and the names of those children represented something. Daniel, to me, is the one that's full of symbols, uh, and the symbols were part of dreams at times. Um, for example, this, uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue represented a series of different Gentile kingdoms. And then the same kind of dream that Daniel had with the four beasts represented those same Gentile kingdoms. But they, they were symbols representing kingdoms rather than just having a word description of those kingdoms. Even the Lord's table is a symbol of sorts, right? We, we use the symbol of the bread and the grape juice for us uh, to symbolize the body and blood of Christ. 
baptism is a visible picture of a believer's being buried with Christ in death and raised to newness of life. Uh, so both of those would be symbols as well. When you're interpreting symbols, obviously you want to identify what the symbol is and then what it points to or what it represents and then the points of resemblance between the symbol and the referent. Remember that, I think I took this directly from Zook too, but most symbols have their base in reality. That is, they're, they're real things. There are some exceptions to that. For example, in, the, in Revelation, when it's talking about the false Christ, how is he represented? is a beast, and a, a, big, a beast that's unlike any beast that we see in the world today. Determine what meaning or resemblance, if any, is explicitly assigned by the text to the referent. Context strikes again. That's the way, anytime you're interpreting symbols, you've got to see if there's something in the immediate context especially that helps you identify what the text is. And Walton speaks what the symbol is. Walton speaks to this a lot too because he's afraid people take uh, make too much of symbols in the Bible and give them meanings that you just can't do. There's just no support for it. You're not using good hermeneutics to do that. Now, there are times where certain things like horns, for example, symbolize power or authority, even kings in certain places. But, again, you're going to either have to have something in the immediate context to let you know that or another passage that helps identify those things that way. Exactly. At all. Like, I think about Kathleen's example. It's a, I, unless I'm missing it, there's no, there's nothing in the rainbow itself other than God assigning it, right, that would indicate that it means I'm not going to flood the world. Or I think about the peace symbol that we use in America or I guess in the world today. Like, maybe there's a reason that it's that shape. I don't know. Yeah. But it seems like it's an agreed upon thing sometimes. So yes. The horn example maybe an, an alternate, because horns are, you know, they are, are on strong animals. Yes. It seems like sometimes there aren't any. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't think the rainbow, I think the rainbow would be one of those. Uh, but again, we're always fortunate when we have a very explicit tie to what the symbol means. Well, the rainbow comes after rain. It does. Because, and that makes me always think about, you know, we're not going to be flooded here, not to yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it's designed to do, and it, it is a great thing to me to, to see a rainbow for that reason, right? Not, not only that it's not going to happen again, but a reminder that it did happen once before and that there is another judgment coming, this one by fire. But I think it had real relevance for the original generation because it had never rained before the flood. And you can imagine if they, the first time it rains, you have that kind of destruction what about the next time it rains? They're wondering if it's going to happen all over again, and that was the significance of the rainbow is the promise that it wouldn't. They had symbols like taking your shoe off and handing it to somebody or walking between a divided animal yes. to make a covenant or yep. piling stones. They yep. had all kinds of things that where if, when everything is said and done, you're not, if you didn't know the culture, you wouldn't see what 
That's right. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier, manners and customs of the culture of that day and understanding what those things were for. I mean, we have the same thing, right? We, do, we have symbols like the peace sign that Matt mentioned. I don't know what the story behind that particular sign is either, but it, it, there's, there is some story or basis to it. And for us, because the Bible and the culture of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, was so long ago, we just have to do some digging to figure out what those mean. A lot of times there is within the text itself some explanation, like the pile of stones being a memorial marker of a, a covenant or a meal that they shared together to establish a covenant. Um, but sometimes you just have to do some digging in a good manners and customs or commentary to figure out what the significance of that thing was. If the passage doesn't make an explicit identification of the symbol, consider the symbol's use in other contexts. Uh, you know, John said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. In that context, you might not know, especially at that point in Revelation, what he's talking about as an original hearer, especially, of that declaration. But you can see how the Old Testament set the way or kind of established the, I would argue that rather than seeing the individual feast and sacrifices as types I would say the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament paved the way for Christ coming and, and doing what he did and people should have seen that connection when it happened maybe not right away but after the coming of the spirit and uh, the teaching of the apostles in particular Principles for interpreting symbols. Be careful to assign the intended meaning to a symbol. You know, a line can be either uh, a line seeking someone to devour or it can depict the strength of Christ and the authority that he has. Don't assume that because a prophetic passage contains symbols, the entire passage is symbolic in meaning. A lot of people do this with the book of Revelation, right? They say, well, that's a book just full of apocalyptic language and symbols we can't really understand that book uh, so they don't interpret anything literally and Revelation 19 19 is a good example and this goes back to what I said earlier about the false Christ being pictured as a beast uh, John says I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army well, I don't think there's a good reason to take the kings of the earth and their armies as symbolic in that context, even though the beast is. In prophetic literature, do not symbolize that which should be taken literally. Uh, as one of the judgments was a third of the sun, moon, and stars being struck so as not to give their light. There's nothing in that passage to indicate that, or in that immediate context, that that should be taken symbolically. And as you look at the seal and trumpet and bold judgments as a whole, it is an unraveling of the regularity of creation that we enjoy today. So, you know, obviously I'm giving away my position. I take, I assume literal, unless there's something in the passage itself to indicate symbolic. And it, I think it'll be there if it's meant to be taken symbolically. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, people don't take that literally, often. Uh, they don't take the tribes literally, and they don't take the number 12,000 literally. Uh, they, 
a lot of people interpret Revelation and don't see any number as literal. And to me, that's just odd. Why would you do that? Uh, now, certainly there are numbers there, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that are typical uh, numbers in Scripture. What, what are some examples of those? Seven is the number of completeness. Oftentimes, what are some others? Forty is uh, oftentimes associated with testing, right? Forty days in the wilderness for Christ. Forty years for the nation of Israel. It rained forty days and forty nights in the flood. But all of those are literal first, right? You don't say, well, that's just symbolic. That doesn't really mean forty. You say, yeah, it's forty, and it's used other places uh, in that kind of in that same way in Scripture. So let's talk about that a little more. Numbers, names, and colors. Certain numbers associated. Seven is completeness. Forty is associated with testing or difficulty. But those numbers still should be understood literally. I would, I would challenge you to show me a number in the book of Revelation that's not to be taken literally. There were seven churches. Uh, the seven seal scroll really had seven seals on it. Uh, I think 12,000 times 12 is 144,000, just like the Bible says that it is. A thousand years is a thousand years. Now, when he wants to use something indefinite, he's got words he can do that. John does. But he doesn't take numbers and use them for something other than their literal value. Names in Scripture are often tied to the circumstances or to the characteristics of an individual at the time of naming. I don't know if you'd call that a symbol, but that's a phenomena that you see in the Bible, right? Uh, tied to some event. Sometimes it's at the birth itself. Sometimes it has to do with whatever circumstances the person is going through. They name the individual in that way. Colors can also be associated with certain qualities. What are some examples? Purple. With, with purple with royalty. White. White with purity, holiness. Think of another one. Red being like sin. So... I think red has one. I would say black probably has more to do with, well, I don't know if I can use a good definition of black. Darkness, maybe, with sin. Red, what are some other possibilities for red? Okay, it is. Blood. I'm thinking more anger, wrath kind of things. And it, it can be both. It, 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 not necessarily always tied to one meaning. Yeah, when it's attached to Christ, it's the wrath before. Is there like a... to draw scarlet scarves on them and wrap them up in scarlet when they're trying to draw pictures uh. of the cross? And I think that's supposed to represent that he's bearing the wrath of God. Okay. I've not I've not seen that I'll connection. Have a check, Again, caution should be exercised not to press any of these uh, beyond what the, what's legitimate. Uh, you can tell I'm, I'm really conservative that way. I don't want to go beyond what the Scripture says. But when the Scripture makes clear that something stands for something else, it'll be explicit more often than not, and it's certainly fine to do it then. Okay, next time. We'll look at parables and allegories, which are a type of figure of speech 
again, fortunately, we've already looked at these, particularly with the parables in Matthew 13. But we'll just talk about them a little more, distinction between the two, and how to properly interpret those. Any other questions before we close? All right. It's a good, good lesson, good discussion. Let's have a word of prayer together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we know that you know the end from the beginning and that you've laid out a plan and you've tied it together, both through prophecy and, and typology. We thank you that we live in a day where we have the complete revelation of your word and you take us from the very beginning of creation to the very end in a new creation and you show us uh, those correspondences. And I just pray that as we come across those, uh, you would continue to enlighten us uh, you would continue to grow us in our appreciation for this master plan of redemption that you're working out through time. We do praise you for the power and the glory that you demonstrate through that, the omniscience, and uh, it's just one of the ways that we know you and know your attributes. And, Lord, we want to walk in subjection to you. We want to honor you and, and give you the reverence that you are due, not only by words and songs but also by our own lives as living sacrifices so we thank you again for the time we've had this morning thank you for the instruction from the book of james and how we we can't put off or blame others for our own sin and at the same time we can also recognize that you use testing and, and difficulty and trial to mature us and to grow us in christ Help us to keep that in mind as we walk through this week. Help us to honor you in all that we do. We do pray for the Okada family too, Father. I thank you that for the faithful giving in our fellowship that enables us to support these three missionary families now. And we pray for each one of their ministries that you would use them both to shepherd the individual flocks that they lead and also to train men that are needed very badly in both of those countries to shepherd other flocks. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.